Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Church London catch-up service. Thank you so much for joining us. We have a passion to present Jesus to London and would love for you to be part of the adventure. So why not say hello to us by visiting our website manualchurchlondon.org so we can get back to you and say a bit more of a personal hello. Okay, so um, today we are in the, in the penultimate chapter of 1 Corinthians, which is, um, so we've been going through since, since September, um, we're in 1 Corinthians 15, and this chapter is all about our future hope. We've called this series, this little mini-series in 1 Corinthians, Future Hope. And so that begs the question, right at the beginning of today, where do you look for your future hope? Where do you look for your future hope? What do you put your hope for the future in? Because we all need to put our hope for the future into something. We, know we need to put our hope into something, right? And the thing is, over the last few years, even before the pandemic came along, I think, I think we have been experiencing um, a growing crisis of hopelessness in our society and in our culture. I think on the whole, people have been becoming less hopeful for the future. Whereas in, in decades gone past, people would have assumed that their, their kids would live in a, in a better, in a more stable, in a more peaceful world. That's no longer necessarily the case, right? And the issue is that there are, there are problems out there and there are problems in here that can rob us of hope. And the problems out there are obvious, right? We've just lived through the pandemic. Inflation is on the rise. Wages aren't keeping up so quickly. There is war in Europe, the, the likes of which we haven't seen in 80 years. Climate change is, is heating up the planet because we haven't stewarded creation well. There are problems out there which we can't do that much about and they can, they can affect us and they can rob us of hope. But more than that, all of us know, if we're honest, that there are problems in here as well. It's not just problems out there, it's problems in here that can also rob us of hope. First of all, on a fundamental basis, the Bible tells us, we've already heard, that we all have a spiritual heart problem. And the problem, the Bible calls it sin. And sin is when we choose something other than God, choose to pursue other things other than him. And when we pursue those, those evil desires of our heart, it separates us from a holy and perfect God. And, and that creates this, this distance between us and the source of life. And so we have this fundamental problem. But on top of that, we have to wrestle with the, the everyday ongoing consequences of living in, in a broken, sinful world that affect our hearts and, and rob us of hope. All of us, to some extent or another, carry around with us baggage which weighs us down because of sin, because of the effects of sin. It could be the effect of our own sinful choices in our life. It could be the result of the sinful choices of other people and it, how it affects us. Maybe it's um, lies that have been spoken over you and that you have received. Maybe it's trauma that you've had to walk through. Whatever it is, there are problems out there and there are problems in here that rob us of our hope for the future. So what do we do when we face these problems? Where do we look for our future hope when we face these problems? The answer of the Bible 
is the resurrection of Jesus. Because Jesus is no longer in the tomb, because he has conquered death, because he is alive, we will be resurrected with him. We will have new, eternal, resurrected life with him. And that, that is our future hope. Fear and worry is not our future. Resurrected life with Jesus is. Loneliness and shame is not our future. Resurrected life with Jesus is. Pain and trauma is not our future. Resurrected life with Jesus is. That is the Christian hope. Amen? Amen. And yet, in the passage we're going to read today, some people that Paul was writing to in Corinth were trying to put the resurrection to the side. We're trying to put the resurrection to the side and, and, and the fingerprints of the enemy are all over this, right? It's a classic lying tactic of the enemy to ask, did God really say that? Do you really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And as a result, some in Corinth were saying that the resurrection doesn't happen. They were trying to have Christianity. They're trying to have faith without the resurrection. And Paul gets wind of this and let's read his response to that in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 12 to 19. So this is Paul responding to that. He says this. Words will come up on the screen. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So, so some people in Corinth are claiming that a literal resurrection of the dead will not happen, does not happen. And Paul just, he just tears it apart. He says, if resurrection isn't possible, if the resurrection of the dead doesn't happen, that means Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead. And if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, we've been preaching a whole bucket load of nonsense. We've just been preaching lies. Your faith is empty. You're still in your sins. There is no possibility of forgiveness. Those who have died have gone forever. And we who are Christians are to be most pitied above all people. He's saying the resurrection isn't something that you can take or leave. It's not a nice to have. It's not something that you can just stand on some middle ground about. If it didn't happen, we are to be most pitied. Let's eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. But it did happen. It did happen. And because it happened, the gospel has turned the world on its head. Because it did happen, Christianity has gone from a, a ragtag bunch of fishermen in the Middle East 2,000 years ago to the biggest faith in the world. And we now have a resurrection hope that we can build our life upon. It gives us hope, a hope that means that we can face the problems out there and the problems in here with hope. We can face the problems out there and we can face the problems in here. And this is what Paul says next. Let's pick it up in verse 20. But in fact, Christ 
has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Hallelujah. For Paul, the hope of the resurrection is how we face the problems out there and the problems in here. And there are three results of the resurrection that I just want to pull out from those verses for us this morning. Three results of the resurrection that mean that we can always have a future hope. Unfortunately, they don't rhyme like Ben last week, but I'm, you know, I can I'm try harder. Number one. The hope of the resurrection means that we are made alive. We are made alive. See, the fundamental problem in here, in our hearts, isn't something that we can just fix up on our own, right? The gospel says that on our own, through our own efforts, we are never going to be able to live faithfully enough or wisely enough or a holy enough life to mend our broken relationship with God. No matter how hard you try, you won't make it because the problem is much deeper and much bigger than we often think that it is. Because it's not just that our hearts were spiritually sick. Our hearts were spiritually dead. Humanity didn't just need some good advice, some good rules about how to live a good life, and that would be good enough in order to make our relationship right with God. We didn't need a load of rules. We were dead in our sin. We didn't need rules. We needed resurrection. We needed a saviour rising from death to life. And in this passage, Paul sets up these parallels between Adam and Jesus. And he describes something that that theologians call federal headship. So I'm going to try and illustrate this using pizza. Okay? So bear with me. There you go. Pizza. Yeah, you've got to shout out for pizza. So imagine with me for a moment that all of humanity is represented by a giant pizza. And Adam pizza, if you will, right? And each slice of this pizza represents a human being. Every human being who has ever existed is represented by a slice of this Adam pizza. The problem with the pizza is that each sli- uh, the problem with the pizza is that the ingredients are made out of Adam ingredients. They're kind of spoiled. They're not right. They're rotten. And because of that, because of we are made out of that those same Adam ingredients, we are separated from God. This is not good pizza. The good news is there's another pizza. Stay with me. There's another pizza. There's a Jesus pizza. When you put your faith in Jesus, that he is the son of God, that he died on the cross, that he rose again to new life, you become a slice cut from the Jesus pizza. You are made new. You are in Christ. You have his ingredients. You are now declared righteous. The Holy Spirit, God himself, now lives within you because you have been cut from this Jesus pizza. You are united with God for all eternity. 
Humanity's fundamental spiritual heart problem has been fixed. You were spiritually dead, now you're alive. It's a good pizza. The offer of new life, the offer to move from death to life, to end the eternal separation with God, that offer is open to everybody. It's open to you this morning. Maybe you've never heard this offer explained quite like that. I expect you probably haven't. But it is an offer that is open to you this morning. We are made alive. You can be made alive in Christ, in faith in what he has done, and, re- and reunited with God the Father. That's the first result. We're made alive. Second result. The hope of the resurrection means that we live in victory now. We live in victory now. We live um, in the time of history after the cross, after the resurrection, but before Jesus returns again. And that means that we live in an era where the kingdom of God has come now, but has also not come fully yet. Victory over the enemy and sin has been won at the cross and through the resurrection, but the kingdom hasn't come fully. Pain, suffering, and evil still exist. There is still a battle going on around us, right? There is still a battle going on. Paul describes Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This means that Jesus' resurrection is a deposit guaranteeing your future resurrection. The resurrection guarantees that in the end, the kingdom of God will come fully and even death will be put under his feet. Because he was resurrected in victory over death, over sin, over Satan, and you are in him, you will be resurrected in victory. Your victory is certain, secure, and guaranteed but there's still a battle going on around us. In December 1941, gear change, in December 1941, uh, Japanese bombers destroyed the US Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor. And up until this point, the US hadn't fully joined World War II. They hadn't fully stepped into that that theater. They hadn't fully stepped into the Allied forces. And when Churchill heard the, the news of this attack on Pearl Harbor, he was sure that the US Army would then step into the war with the full force of its power and that the result of the war, World War II, was now a foregone conclusion because the power of the US Army, the US Navy, was now going to enter into the war on the side of the Allies. And he wrote this in his diary in December 1941. This is four years before the war would actually end. Shall I do this in a Winston Churchill voice? (laughs) So, we had won after all. No, I'm going to stop. Okay. We had won after all. We had won the war. This is four years before, right? No doubt it would take a long time, many disasters, immeasurable cost and tribulation lay ahead, but there was no more doubt about the end. Being saturated and satiated with emotion and sensation, I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and thankful. Churchill wrote those words four years before the end of the war. Millions more people were going to end up losing their lives. There were dark days ahead, times of trouble, times of darkness. But he was confident that victory was now assured. 
Jesus has already won the war. He's already won the war. But there's still a spiritual battle that wages all around us in this world. Humanity is made in God's image. And Satan, our enemy, hates God. And he hates people who are made in the image of God. He hates the image bearers of, of the one he really hates. And he, and he shows this hatred in a number of, number of different ways. But one of the primary ways he does that is by tying people up in lies and stealing their freedom. So many people in, our, in the world around us are tied up in lies and in hopelessness and in darkness because of the lies of the enemy that are being spoken into their, into their lives. Church, as the people of God, we have been made alive and we get to share in the victory of Jesus and we get to live in the light and the freedom of that victory, of that now. We get to live in the light of that now. Because we are his, we can live in the middle of the battle with a mindset of victory that brings us freedom. Because of the resurrection, we have been equipped with how to combat and deal with the lies and the hopelessness and the problems in here, those problems in here that bind so many people up, that cause so much pain. Through the victory of Jesus' resurrection, we have now been given the resources to defeat the lies of the enemy when they come at us. We've been given the victory of Jesus and that helps us defeat those lies. And the enemy hates the victory of Jesus. And one of his key strategies is to undermine your faith in Jesus' victory. In the church in Corinth, the enemy was sowing seeds of doubt into the church. Is there really a resurrection? Is that really possible? Did dead people really rise from death to life? And Paul was having to, to, to come against it and say, no, it really did happen and it really is important. Maybe that's not the lie that you are believing right now. Maybe it's not the lie that is undermining your faith in the victory of God. Perhaps instead, the trap that you've fallen into is that you've forgotten you're in a battle and you don't deliberately receive the power of the resurrection when you face those problems in here. You're not receiving. You believe in the resurrection. Perhaps you're not receiving the power of the resurrection when you come against those lies of the enemy. You see, sometimes those, those problems in here can act as a landing strip for the enemy. It's like he sees one of those mistakes or doubts or traumas, those problems in here, and then he points to it and he says, give up. Who do you think you are? God doesn't care about you. Nobody cares about you. God's never going to be able to use someone like you. Maybe you've been listening to those lies for a long time. Maybe you've started to believe those lies. But church, through the victory of the resurrection, we have been given the resources to defeat those lies of the enemy. When we hear those lies, we need to get into the habit in those moments when they come of receiving the victory of God again by remembering truth and letting that land on those problems instead. 
And when we do that, it breaks the power of those lies. It puts them under the feet of Jesus. It enables us to live in freedom and victory now. The truth just of these verses is that you belong to Jesus. You are made alive in him. Past mistakes do not define who you are. Jesus does. Past mistakes do not define who you are. Jesus does. You're in the Jesus pizza. God does absolutely care about you. In fact, through his spirit, Jesus is with you right now and in every single second of your life. You do not need to live in fear because Jesus is on the throne and is putting all his enemies under his feet. Jesus is victorious and because of his victory, we get to live in freedom now. Because of the resurrection, we get to live in victory now. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Finally, the hope of the resurrection, final point. The hope of the resurrection means that we, will, we can live knowing the end of the story. We know how it's going to turn out. My wife has recently been reading um, a book with my girls at bedtime called A Little Princess. Has anybody read that? Reading it right now? What, on your phone, yeah? Oh, yeah, sure, whatever, mate. Um, she read it when she was little, um, and now she, I think there's a bit, few questionable bits in it. Don't blame me if I read it. And, anyway, um, she's, re she's reading it right now, and she read it when she was little, and she's reading it to my girls. And this book is, is basically a classic kind of Disney princess story, right? Um, the main character is this little girl called Sarah, um, and she is sent to a boarding school by her rich father. And while she's there, her father dies, making her an orphan. He loses all of his fortune, um, and she is forced to work because her father is no longer paying for this boarding school. She's forced to work basically as a servant, as a slave for this evil Miss Minchin, which is a wonderful name, an evil Miss Minchin headmistress who kind of oversees this boarding school. And poor little Sarah is, is, is having a horrible time. She's going from, from worst thing to worst thing. She's starving. She's being worked to the bone. It just gets worse and worse and worse, more and more hopeless. And my girls, when they are hearing this story, their, their eyes are opening wide. <laughs> they get more and more worried. Sarah is like, she's wonderful. She's kind to everybody that she sees, but it's just getting worse and worse for her. What is going to happen to Sarah, mummy? Is Sarah going to be all right? And my wife knows the end of the story, right? My wife's not reacting like that. She's read it. Well, she might have cried a bit. She's read it before. She knows the, in the end, everything will be okay. Church, we get to live as people who know the end of the story. <laughs> I'll, I'll catch you up later, mate. There are many problems in this world, many, many evils, climate change, youth violence, war, poverty. The list is almost endless, right? The world, for all of its wonder and its beauty, all of the ways that it is simply amazing, can sometimes feel really dark. And when we are confronted with the problems out there and the uncertainties of the world, we need to become, we, need, we don't need to be overcome with anxiety or worry. We don't need that to let that rob us of hope 
because we know in the end our king will put all evil and suffering, all pain under his feet. That in the end, even death will be defeated. When we come up against the problems of the world out there and they try and rob us of hope, we need to get good at flicking forward to the end of the story and remembering how this all ends. We need to get good at readjusting our horizon. Sometimes the horizon of our vision is consumed by the problem that we're facing. Sometimes it's all that we can see, but that's not what God wants our vision to be filled with. He wants us to see how the story really ends. When we are scrolling through our timelines, when we're catching up on the news, we need to get into the habit of consuming the information that is coming toward us through the lens of Jesus' resurrection. We need to get better at reading the story with one eye on how it ends. And that doesn't mean that we step back from the world, right? Don't hear that. That doesn't mean that we step back from the world and we suddenly become ambivalent to what's going on. The reality is is that the opposite effect should happen. Because we know the end of the story, that should fuel in us the ability to serve and take risks and sacrifice for God and for his kingdom and for the the good of others because we know the end of the story. Because we know that in, in the end, this isn't all there is. God in his kingdom will advance into eternity and we are part of that. Because we know God's kingdom is is continuing to grow and advance no matter what. We're going to close today. What time is it? We're going to close today by um, taking communion together to remember the victory of Jesus. So um, maybe if the band could come up and I'll just kind of lead us into communion. I'm going to take communion. And remember his death on the cross, his, his body breaking, his blood shed, and the empty grave, the empty grave where we find our hope for the future, the resurrection where we find our hope for the future. This meal of communion is only for people who are from the Jesus pizza, right? It's a meal for people who have put their faith in him. If that's not you this morning, we are so glad that you are here. Please don't, feel, please don't take part in this. Just observe what's going on. This is, a, this is a meal for those who have put their faith in Jesus. And as we do that today, I want you to do it in one of two ways. One of two ways. First way, maybe as I was talking, you felt the nudge of the Holy Spirit and you know that you have been listening to lies from the enemy. Lies that make you feel defeated and hopeless. If that's you, as we take communion, I'd like you to to repent to God for believing that lie. And as you take communion, declare your faith in the victory of Jesus that is represented in the juice and in the bread. Let me give you an example. For example, you might have spent a lot of time listening to the lie that God doesn't care about you. So if that is true, you would say out loud, quietly, so nobody else can hear, out loud, Father, I'm sorry that I've believed the lie that no one cares about me. I know that you care about me, that you even died on the cross to save me. I declare my faith in your victory as I take this bread and wine. Does that make sense? So that's the first way to to kind of repent of the lies. And and repentance is powerful because it breaks the power of the enemy. Yeah? So that's the first way. 
Second way, that might, might not apply to you. So the second way I'd like you to take communion today is as you take it, to ask God for help to see the problems that you face and hear about in the world through the lens of the resurrection. As you take it, Father, help me to see all of the problems out there that try and rob me of hope through this, through the, through the a resurrection lens, through the lens that knows the victory of Jesus through his life, his death, and, his, and the empty tomb. Now help me to understand the world through this lens. Ask for God to help you see those problems through this lens. Does that make sense? Two ways to take communion.